from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Please turn in your pew Bibles to the first psalm, which is found on page 463 in the Old Testament. Listen for God's word for us this morning. Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or take the path of the sinner's tribe, or sit in the seat of scoffers, but their delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law they meditate day and night. They are like trees planted by streams of water, which yield their fruit in this season, and their leaves do not wither. It is all they do, they prosper. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteousness. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, and the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to begin with a story about a boy king named Josiah, who was coronated the king of Judah in the 7th century BC when he was just eight years old. At the time of his reign, the Israelites were divided into two kingdoms, a northern and a southern kingdom, Israel to the north, Judah to the south, where Josiah would reign. Uh, Josiah was part of a royal family. His father, Amon, was also king. His rule was short-lived as he was assassinated. It was an inside job, assassinated by his own servants, who deemed that his leadership was unfavorable to God, who deemed that he was a king that had forgotten who God had called the king to be and how the king should leave. In some measure, we cannot blame Amon entirely. He was just emulating what his father Manasseh had done over the years. In fact, 55 years Josiah's grandfather reigned. And during that time, he permitted idolatry. He permitted pagan worship. He made economic deals that hurt the people with the enemies of the people and has been given a very poor record by the scripture writers throughout the tellings in 2 Kings. Josiah, however, has a different narrative attached to his leadership life. Josiah was known as a great reformer with the people of God. He was known as a great leader who sought to bring the very word of God to the center of the people's life and their faith. See, when Josiah was in his mid-20s, he instructed his chief of staff to go to the temple and to speak with the the chief priest there, sort of the senior pastor of the temple, a man named Hilkiah. And Hilkiah not only oversaw the worship life of the people of God, but he also oversaw the, the temple treasury. And for many years, the temple had been neglected. 
Uh, they didn't take care of the, of the windows and the walls and the floor and all the accoutrement that made for a, a meaningful worship environment for the people of God. And yet the temple taxes were still paid year after year after year. And so Josiah knew that Hilkiah was sitting on a gold mine. And he thought, now is the time, as we're trying to come back to God as a people, to forgo the way his father and grandfather had led, that now is the time to take those resources and do a capital improvement project. And so he instructs Hilkiah to go into the treasury and to bring out the riches, the wealth, and to begin to hire workers, hire artisans and masons and carpenters to begin to put the temple back together to make it excellent for worship and to honor God. So Hilkiah does just that. He goes into the, the treasury room. And, and it, it may have been that not many people had entered in there. Imagine a room with a bunch of money, with a bunch of things that are, are quite valuable in the time, but maybe see some cobwebs there. It's darkly lit. Not many people go in there, and they begin to take out the wealth. They begin to take out the riches. They begin to take out the pieces of value and begin to hire all of these trade workers. And Hilkiah gets to the very back of the room, and he makes an unbelievable discovery. He discovers a scroll. Scholars think that that scroll held a portion of, or maybe even the entire corpus of the book of Deuteronomy, the very law of God, a book, a scroll that, that had been forgotten by generations in the past, buried away in the treasure room for no one to hear and no one to read. And so Hilkiah, the chief priest, brought the scroll to the chief of staff. The chief of staff brought it to King Josiah and he read it to him. And after Josiah had listened to all the words of the scroll, to the very word of God, he ripped his royal robe as a sign of lament, as a sign of, of grief, because he realized that the people had forgotten the word of God. They'd forgotten what God had called them to do and who God had called them to be. And so Josiah decided that they were going to have to have a sort of tent revival in the community. And he calls them all together, every single citizen, the military, the politicians, the religious leaders, his court, and every citizen of Jerusalem, and brings them to the temple and he himself reads from the scroll. And in front of every citizen of the land, he makes a promise. He promises that under his rule, the word of God would be central to the life of faith, that they would no longer bury it in a back room, but that it would set the pace for their faith and their life together. And the people made the same covenant. Josiah is remembered as a reformer, as one who brought back the word of God into the center part, the center place of the community's faith and life. Uh, historian and scholar John Leith once said that the Reformation and Reformed theology was and continues to be intensely biblical. 
And there's a parallel. I began with the story of Josiah in this particular way because there is a parallel between what the reformers were trying to do some 2,200 years after the time of Josiah. For there have been times in the life of faith with the people of God where the word of God has been buried, has been kept and locked in a back room, where the people of faith have tried to navigate the world and their life together outside of God's word. But here, as it was in Josiah's time, so it was in the 16th century, the reformers sought to bring the word of God into the central place in the life of faith. And that's what they did. Under the heading Sola Scriptura, which translates by Scripture alone, they cried out to the church and to one another to say that our faith and our life together needs to be rooted in God's word. For that word had been pushed aside in many ways, had played second chair to papal authority, had played third chair to church tradition. But the reformers said, no, we need to recover. We need to bring out of that back room the word of God, for it is this word that anchors our faith. And so in this second week of our series marking the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, we reflect on the centrality of the scripture. We reflect on it in such a way that names it not only as an essential part of the movement that took place 500 years ago, but part of our movement today as people of faith and as people of God. And here is the big idea of the Reformation. Here's the big idea when it comes to Scripture. The believer, says the reformer, is not bound by any teaching, by any word, by any authority, by any person or by any tradition that does not find its basis or its affirmation in the Bible. The believer's conscience is not subjected to any other word than the word found in Scripture. Bottom line is this, that the Scripture, not papal authority, not church tradition, not human traditions, the Scripture is the sole rule and authority for faith and life. Now, they didn't come about this in an easy way, and as you can imagine, the authorities that, that claim the right to dictate what faith should look like, namely papal authority and those priests and bishops operating in the land under the auspices of church tradition, this wasn't just an easy switch. There was a significant conflict when you begin to call out the principalities and powers and begin to replace their authority with something else. And the reformers had to articulate in a clear way why the Bible was authoritative, why the scriptures were authoritative over and above all other things. And the way in which they did it was particularly nuanced. They, they talked about how the scriptures are authoritative in as, and as far as the Holy Spirit makes them so. For up until that time, they were leaning into human traditions. And the reformers wanted to say, no, God is still speaking. God is still alive. 
God is still moving and acting through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when you begin to read Scripture, it becomes the Word of God. It becomes the Word of God when the Holy Spirit is active. Not when we're active, not when the church is active, but when the very Spirit of God makes it alive. Calvin said it this way, the Word itself is not quite certain for us unless it be confirmed by the testimony of the Spirit. Said in another way, this book is not the Word of God unless God makes it so. Unless the Holy Spirit is active, not your spirit, not my spirit, but the Holy Spirit illumining our hearts and our minds to what God has said and what God still speaks today. The authority of the scripture is dependent on God, not on the church. It's dependent on God. So to frame it in the most simplistic terms I think I can, Christians don't believe in the Bible. Although we hear people say, do you believe in the Bible? No, I don't believe in the Bible. I believe in the God who is testified in the Bible. This is different than God. God is God, and this isn't. And this only becomes the Word of God when God makes it so. One of the great missteps, I think, of certain parts of contemporary Christianity occurs when churches or pastors and preachers invite the people of God to believe in the Bible instead of believing in Jesus Christ. To believe in the Bible instead of believing in God. And so when fundamentalist Christians talk about the Bible being infallible or without error or perfect in how it's presented, just as it is, you don't need anything else. The reformer says, oh, wait a minute. This is not equal to God. The only way this becomes the word of God, says the reformer, is if God's spirit is alive in our reading of it. If God is making it so. But the fundamentalist says, no, you you don't need anything else. You can do this on your own. You've got this yourself. It is what it is in perfect form. You don't need anything from the outside. But the reformer says, no, you absolutely need the Holy Spirit to illumine your heart and your mind. And it positions us, right, in a posture of humility under the Word. The Word of God can never be domesticated because it only becomes the Word of God when God says it's so. So it's not about you and it's not about me and it's not about our interpretation on our own merits and our own wisdom and our own intellect, but it's about God's Spirit making it come alive. Friends, the Bible is not God. God is God. Now, I see some mainline Protestant Christians in the sanctuary this morning, and they're nodding their head. They're saying, yes, it's easy for us, isn't it? For, for those of us who sort of categorize ourselves as mainline Protestant Christians, to be critical of our fundamentalist brothers and sisters on this particular point. 
And I suspect I'm preaching to many of you this morning, even as I preach to myself, that we pat ourselves on the back for possessing a more robust, a more mature, a more open-minded faith than those fundamentalists over there. To be sure, we're motivated by Kant's famous dictum, dare to think for yourself. And we Presbyterians, we certainly will think for ourselves. Many mainline Protestant Christians want more than being told by their preacher, well, the Bible says it, so believe it and be quiet. We want more than that. We have a thinking faith. We pride ourselves on not being afraid of what other disciplines, what science even might say to us about the human condition, about nature, about society. We pride ourselves on on seeking other sources for the truth. We're well-rounded people of faith. We'll, we'll go to other sources to find out who we need to be. But let me suggest to you that the reformers would have a problem with that too. They'd have a problem with that too. Just as they would offer a critique, I think, of, of fundamentalist approaches to the Bible, maybe equating the Bible with the very person of God as a form of idolatry. I think they would critique the mainline Protestant church for turning away from the scriptures when we should be turning toward them. For not inviting the spirit into our faith formation through this word of God. Right, because isn't it so that we mainline Protestant Christians will easily turn to so many other words before we turn to this word. So often in our day-to-day -day lives, maybe the scripture is the last word we think about. We try all these other routes, all these other words we listen to, and then say, oh, well, maybe I should read the Bible now. When instead of going right to the scriptures and trusting that God makes this word come alive in our lives, no matter what we are facing or what is ahead of us. This is a very general comment. I know it's not true in all forms, but I suspect that for many, there is for us a temptation to undervalue at best or simply ignore at worst the centrality the scriptures are supposed to play in our lives and in our faith. I, I want to make the point through a story. In my very first month of seminary, I was in the cafeteria, and I got in line behind an older gentleman. He was sort of dressed up in the Presbyterian uniform, like blue blazer, white shirt, red tie, khakis, right? And, uh, and he was about 80 years old, I found out later, and and he didn't so much walk as much as he shuffled when he picked up his, his tray. I noticed a tremor in his hand. And he was moving so slowly through the line. I looked at my watch. I realized that the minutes were counting down to my next class. And I have to admit that my thoughts weren't very Christian toward this man. And I think he may have felt my hovering presence behind him. Because he turned around and said, I'm sorry I'm moving so slowly. And I tried to hide my impatience, and I, and I said, oh, no problem, no problem at all. He then said something surprising to me. He said, would you like to sit with me for lunch? And I said, uh, no, I've, I really should prepare for class. And he said, okay, and he, and he moved on to the cashier. 
Now, for some in our congregation, I imagine this is how we view Scripture. There's a parallel here. We want to be respectful, right? We want to be polite toward the Scriptures, paying them homage, at least on Sundays, but spending little time to eat with them, so to speak, during the week. We judge them sometimes as old, as outdated. Little use to us they have. They're slow and outpaced by all this other knowledge that is accessible to us. There's, there's not much they could teach us, really. Nothing significant they may form in us, especially with our 21st century complicated lives. There are so many other words we would rather turn towards, so many other words we'd rather eat with. So the man paid for his food, and he headed toward the main part of the dining room. And I noticed that just beyond him, there were about 15 students with their trays kind of leaning in toward him. And they were waiting for him. And they were waiting to see where he was going to sit. Now, these tables weren't very big. Wherever he sat, there would only be five chairs. And there were 15 of these students waiting to sit with him. And when he finally put his tray down... Like birds of prey, these 15 students descended on those open seats, like musical chairs, elbowing other classmates out of the way. Food is flying just to sit down at this table. So that piqued my interest. I said to someone in line, who is that guy? And this woman who was standing near to me said, oh, that's, that's Dr. Bruce Metzger. Now, Bruce Metzger, until his death, was the foremost Greek New Testament scholar on the planet. In fact, you see these blue pew Bibles that are right in front of you? He was the general editor of the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible, this Bible that we use each and every week. No wonder people wanted to sit with him. No wonder people wanted to be formed under his wisdom and his teaching. They wanted access to his insight and his knowledge. And friends, I believe that we as a church should possess that same kind of eagerness when it comes to the scriptures. That we should want to sit with them. We should want to eat with them. We should want to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, be illumined to how God is speaking into our lives right now, today. Look, the Bible is not intended to be a scientific work. Don't read it for science. The Bible is not intended to be a case study on religious history or religious sociology. Don't read it for that. The Bible is not intended to be a book of ethics or morality. That's not what it's for. The Bible is a witness to who God is, not just who God was, but who God is right now and how God might be speaking into our lives. And so we take up, we read it, we consistently turn toward the scripture because in it we begin to find our place in God's story and hear God's word spoken directly to us. I want to close with, with another story that just also happens to be my, from my first year of seminary. Uh, there was a man by the name of Dr. Patrick Miller. He was a professor and mentor to, to many students who had gone through Princeton Theological Seminary over the last 30-plus years or so. He taught Old Testament. In fact, he taught several of 
our pastoral staff. He, he taught Kevin Nabb. He taught Ryan Bonfilio. He taught Jamie Butcher. He taught Katie Sundermeyer. Uh, he taught me. Joel Lamont, who many of you know from his teaching ministry here at the church, uh, you know him when he plays trumpet and accompanying the organ from time to time. Uh, he's also the spouse of one of our pastors, Rebecca Lamont. He, uh, he's a professor at Emory, at Candler School of Theology in Old Testament, and we were texting this week. I was asking him about his remembrances of Pat Miller, and he said, Pat Miller is the reason I became an Old Testament professor. Okay? So this influence with this one professor is profound and impactful. And he was that kind of teacher. I remember on the first day of the first semester of Introduction to the Old Testament, 8 a.m., 150 students in the course. He kept our attention every second. And he spoke in such an eloquent way about the need for our knowledge and our familiarity and our love of the Old Testament, not just for a life of faith, but also for our pastoral leadership. And he closed his lecture and in good Presbyterian fashions, there was a lot of mmm in agreement. But then he chose not to dismiss us. And he came from behind the lectern and he held his Bible. And he said to the class, this morning I received a phone call from one of my closest friend's spouse, letting me know that he had unexpectedly died. And he said, there's going to be moments in faith, there's going to be moments in life, there's going to be moments in your ministry where you have no words but these. And he held it up. And then he opened to Psalm 46. He didn't have to. He had the Psalms memorized in Hebrew. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. Class dismissed. I remember that day with great clarity and subsequently have seen with my own eyes and have heard with my own ears the truth of what he spoke. I saw it on an occasion where I watched a mother keeping watch by her premature child in the NICU of a hospital, intubated in one of those incubators, reading Psalm 139 out loud. For it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I saw it this past Friday at our men's breakfast with our guest, attorney Clint Rucker. He's a prosecutor here in Atlanta and in Fulton County. And he read from Proverbs 22.6. He said, train up a child in the way they should go, and when they are old, they will not stray from it. And Mr. Rucker cited this text as the motivation behind his mission to rehabilitate and restore juvenile offenders in society and into their communities. I saw this in one of our members a few years ago when he was being recognized by Emory Law School for Excellence in Community Service. And he began his acceptance speech in this very secular place 
by quoting from the New Testament, by talking about the Sermon on the Mount and the Good Samaritan, and, and then saying that Jesus, as he reads him in the Gospels, is the reason he has a passion to end chronic homelessness in Atlanta. I saw it recently in an email from someone in our congregation going through a cancer battle, and they quoted the words that I regularly use for our benediction. Do not worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Friends, God is still speaking today. May he speak into your life through this book as the Holy Spirit makes it the very word of God to you, to our church, and to the world. Amen.